Warning, this podcast contains explicit references to donkey members and horse sperm. Today's episode of The Scathing Atheist is brought to you by Fists Across America Pasturbation Services. Does your profession demand that you maintain a platonic relationship with yourself? Well, our heathen hordes of hairy palm specialists have been beating the bishop for the bishop since 1989. So when you think vicarious autoerotica, think of us beating off. Fists Across America will be your right hand's right hand man. And now, The Scathing Atheist. I'm Tracy Harris from The Atheist Experience, and we did, in fact, evolve from Filthy Monkey Man. As East Donnerstag, it's October 2nd. And a late Gluglicus Oktoberfest to you, sir. <laughs> I'm No Illusions. I'm Heath Enright, and from Garlic Nazi, New York, New York. And 31 Flavors, Podog, Georgia, this is The Scathing Atheist. In this week's episode, we sprecken the sassy. <laughs> we'll irrationally disparage pigs. Und Kindergarten Zeitgeist Hefeweiss. <laughs> I could have done that one. Volkswagen. But first, the diatribe. <laughs> Thursday night, and I'm watching the Giants embarrass Washington, aided by a three-touchdown performance by Larry Donnell that kicked off the epic 50-point vengeance beatdown I put on my arch-fantasy football nemesis Cecil last week. And during the game, as is wont to happen in football, one of the players gets shaken up, so the trainers all rush on the field with their gear and they gather around him, but apparently that's not enough for Giants running back Rashad Jennings, who decides that he'd like to help as well by praying. Now, interestingly enough, God can't hear him unless he kneels conspicuously while close enough to the injured player to be in the camera frame. Weird. It's almost like he doesn't actually believe that an omnipotent, all-knowing wizard will magically heal the Redskins lineman as long as he reminds him while in blowjob stance, but instead is using prayer as a conspicuous and unconvincing reminder of what a swell fella he is. Now, I suppose that even some atheists might accuse me of being unduly cynical here. After all, doesn't Rashad Jennings at least think he's doing a good thing by praying? Doesn't it at least come from a good, if misguided, place? But I'd argue that it really doesn't. It's kind of like the kid saying, hey, mom, look how good I'm being. But more than that, it's a signal that he's a member of the club. You know, if you actually thought an omnipotent, all-knowing wielder of magic was intervening in the football game, wouldn't it stand a reason that he could hear your prayer even if you weren't six feet away from the action and facing the cameras? Hell, even their own Bible backs me up on this. Many atheists, and apparently no Christians, know all about the passage in Matthew chapter 6 where Christians are instructed to not pray in public, to not be conspicuous with their prayer. From the KJV, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, but you, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret, and the Father in secret shall reward thee openly. Yada, yada, yada. It just goes on like that for thousands of fucking pages. And now, obviously, of course, there are some passages that directly contradict this statement in the book of John and in Timothy, but... It's the Bible. There's something that contradicts everything. But even if we just examine this from, like, you know, for internal consistency, it reveals the same sentiment. God knows everything, right? He already knows what you're going to pray before you pray it. And frankly, it doesn't take omniscience to know that you'd rather your kid didn't die from the leukemia. 
So what purpose does it serve to make a big public display out of your piety? And from, from a theological perspective, what's the difference between praying on one knee on camera and bowing your head reverently from the sideline? Is God magic governed by the inverse square law? Are you afraid God won't know which injured tackle you want him to heal? Do you think God was watching the game and he only realized you were praying when he saw you on the commercial cutaway? Of course, the glaring contradiction in prayer has been pointed out by plenty of atheists before me, so much so that you've probably seen it rendered as a flowchart in a meme or two. God's all-knowing, isn't he? God has a plan, doesn't he? Well, then who the hell are you to try to tell God how to do his job? You know, and now to be fair and forestall a criticism of this diatribe, the Christians have thought about that one too. You know, you'll hear them preempting their prayer with "if it's in your will" or "or if it isn't her time" and whatnot. And the more reflective theists will explain that prayer is really more for the prayer than the prayee. You know, it's a way of collecting one's thoughts and reflecting on God's plan or whatever. You know, calling on Him for understanding rather than calling on Him to change His mind. And hey, you know what? In my mind, that kind of prayer is completely legit. I talk to myself all the time. I did it while I was writing this fucking diatribe. But it helps if you recognize the limits of your internal dialogue. It's it's great if you're trying to figure out the best way to word a joke or how to connect two points in an essay. But if you're appealing to the voice in your head to understand why earthquakes and tornadoes happen, you might as well be asking a fucking eight ball. And of course, praying at the pole or at the feet of an injured player on a football field can't be excused with that apologetic. Conspicuous prayer can't be justified by appealing to enlightenment or comprehension. Turns out it can't be justified at all. But of course, we're dancing around the main issue when it comes to prayer. You know, the, the hey, look how Christian I am type of prayer is actually the least dangerous in my mind. It's, it's like a, a more assholey version of wearing a t-shirt with your favorite band on it. The truly dangerous prayers are the ones that come from people who think that they'll work. You're praying for the victims of some natural disaster is worse than doing nothing because at least the person who did nothing knows they did nothing, and maybe they'll suffer from the kind of guilt that'll spur real action later. Not so for the delusionally pious ignoramus that invoked God magic on behalf of those poor folks. Prayer is no more harmless than it is helpful. Where real action is available, it's an excuse for passivity, and where no action is available, it's an impediment to acceptance. But there is one good thing about prayer. It's one of the few testable claims that religion makes. It's been tested. It failed. Now, I don't expect religious people to be dissuaded by well-designed, double-blind, placebo-controlled experiments. They prefer personal experience to proper epistemology. But they're running a poorly designed version of that same experiment, too, and they're doing it every day. And every day it gets harder to ignore their own findings because micro or macro, nothing fails like prayer. They're talking about your Jesus. Interrupt this broadcast, bring you a special news bulletin. Joining me for headlines tonight is the only person other than myself that's currently enjoying a two-game winning streak in the fantasy football league of sinister <laughs> secularist yeah, Heath Enright. Heath, how's the view from first place, man? Well, I, I imagine it's better than the view from sixth. It's pretty good. Wow. Pretty good. Here I am trying to pump you. I, I should point out, I'm only a few points away from fourth. Uh, well, my, my view's a lot better than from fourth, too, uh, I would imagine. <laughs> but, but you know, a few points away from fourth is still good. That, that, that's, that's a few points away from third, second. So that's right. something. So. In our lead story tonight <laughs> from the African anti-vaxxer file, grossly outdated religious beliefs, read religious beliefs right. involving physical contact with the corpse during funeral rituals have exacerbated the current outbreak of the Ebola virus in parts of Africa. This is according to... Real scientist and guy who first identified Ebola, Peter Pyatt. So, kind of knows what he's talking about. Mm. Not that his enormous level of expertise should be necessary on this one, but the experts are saying that when family members kiss the pus-oozing, decomposing corpse of Ebola victims and then share a meal next to the open grave, that 
can lead to negative health outcomes, no according to the shit. experts. Now, see, that to me is the problem with science. It takes all the fun out of tonguing cadavers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> among Big other buzzkill. things. Science is ruining it for everybody. So Pites, the director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which seems to be an attempt by the British at a polite euphemism for guy in charge of the translucent Anglo nerds that took up the white man's burden and decided to help out the tropical <laughs> colors by curing all those brown people diseases for them. Now, in exchange, the, uh, the British hope to receive advice from the Tropical School of Oral Hygiene and Snaggletooth Repair. So, you know, they're going to go back and forth wow. on it. I would imagine. See, he's racist against whites, too. Right? Now, I think it's worth noting that sucking on dead people isn't the only superstition that's exacerbating this epidemic. There's also a growing distrust of Western medicine and a conspiracy theory that suggests that the white people invented Ebola to wipe Africans out, which is disturbing either because it's intensifying the spread of the disease or because they're on to us. I don't, I don't know which. I'm, I'm withholding judgment until Alex Jones chimes in on this one. <laughs> Yeah, it's good to wait until all the, the fiction's in from Alex Jones before you chime in. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so, so in Pyatt's somewhat racist-sounding yet also magnanimous capacity, he, uh, he's reached out to the traditionalist groups of Africa that practice these dangerous rituals, and he's urging them to find a less enormously stupid way of sending dead people to the invisible ancestral outer realm, at least until all this continental pandemic stuff blows over. That would be nice. Right. Once that's over, you can fuck corpses in a convenience store bathroom if that's what you think gets <laughs> right. to happen. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> I believe in that one headline, you, you successfully belittled Africans, Brits, theists, and people from New Jersey. Well done. Way to be inclusive. <laughs> Moving on now to satellite coverage of this game is brought to you by the NSA News. Apparently, Chief Safety Hussein Abdullah is a Muslim. Who'd have thunk? Hmm. Well, Weird. not the back judge in Monday night's anal raping of the Patriots, apparently, who flagged Abdullah for excessive celebration when he bowed in prayer after scoring a touchdown off an errant Tom Brady pass. And by errant, I mean a throw by Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah, thanking Allah for a pick six from Tom Brady is a little silly, but, you know, kneeling for a few seconds after a score certainly doesn't take away from the game too much. So, right. You know, I'm fine with letting this one go. But just to add some context, Abdullah and his brother, who's also an NFL player, they took off all of last season to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. That's, that's two years of NFL salary foregone in a league with an average career span of 3.3 right. years. Wow. And just for the record, I can get from New York to Mecca and back in, like, 27 hours. What were they doing for a year? Just come back and play 15 games. I, I think you're overestimating your ability to get back. Now, I've made my thoughts on NFL players praying clear as recently as the diatribe, but even I recognize that if you're going to let one religion do it, you kind of have to let them all do it. Now, to be fair to the officials, though, he was actually penalized for unsportsmanlike conduct, and being a Muslim is unsportsmanlike. But even NFL officials admitted on Tuesday that the flag, much like 40% of the throws that Brady has made this season, should never have been thrown. <laughs> Yeah, be, gotta be a disaster for anyone that drafted him as their starting uh, fantasy quarterback. Jesus, that would you know it's bad when you're excited to get Eli on waivers. Now, the, <laughs> the silver lining here, though, is that I think this offers us a backdoor way of getting all the nonsensical religious gesticulating out of football altogether. I propose that we take an FSM slash Satanic Temple approach. See. What we do is we establish a religion where you commune with God through unsportsmanlike touchdown celebrations. <laughs> we, we could call it Ocho Cincoism. And then maybe you hear with an offensive accent news. Nick Barnfield and Sarah Cleves claim they were removed from a bus miles before their stop, along with their one-year-old autistic daughter, after a Muslim woman alerted the driver they were singing rapidly anti-Muslim hate music that contained numerous inflammatory references to the existence of the pig species. How dare Just they? to be clear, the couple was singing the theme song from Peppa Pig to the kids. That's a 
British wow. children's cartoon, but a family of uh, presumably non-cannibalistic pigs. So I don't even understand. See, there's Blame television that. for you again. No originality. Non-cannibalistic cartoon pigs have been done to death. <laughs> Change but... it up, for fuck's sake. <laughs> now, to be fair, the article only gives the account of the couple and not the Muslim narc, so I tend yeah. not to trust it entirely just because, you know, get both sides. Right. But regardless of whether this particular story is accurate, stupid shit like this happens all the time. Gay people stole our word. Now our straight marriage is bullshit and full of gay sodomy. Uh, we can't not rape women in public if they don't wear a shroud. We can't fulfill God's prophecy unless the servant classes re-enslave themselves. You, just throwing it on everybody else. Just You can't. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, this story seems to have originated from the National Review, so there's plenty of reason to question the veracity of the reporting. But I love the story nonetheless because it does speak to this very real trend of religious people demanding that other people take their religious prohibitions seriously. Uh, you know, I mean, in the States, we mostly get this from Christians, but in Europe, it's increasingly come from the Muslims. And, and, but I'm sure it's just because we have bases in Saudi Arabia. The whole thing's absurd, though. It's like a class action lawsuit against the Rolling Stones by diabetics and recovering heroin addicts that heard brown sugar at a bar. I mean, it's <laughs> asinine. Religious people need to stop trying to legislate mobile radii of special privileges and public censorship. Follow them around everywhere. Exactly. And in this particular case, you got these absurd parents who probably spent decades carrying around three walls and a ceiling just to make sure their kids don't break that fourth wall and step into reality. Then when they're not allowed to construct their soundproof booth on the public bus, they insist all the passengers speak halal for a couple hours? No. No. <laughs> if being in public interferes with your Islam, then stay in your fucking house or... Stop with the Islam. It's your call. I mean, yeah. there's nothing in Islam that says you have to go on buses or leave your house. Exactly. And, I, you know, I don't give a fuck. I am totally writing a kid song now called Halal the Muslim Pig. And nobody, <laughs> nobody would be friends with him. And Anyway. <laughs> and in four inches closer to Jupiter news tonight, Archbishop Joseph Wesolowski earned the distinction of being the first child rapist in Vatican City to ever face punishment for it. Now, you might recall Wesolowski from episode 30 of this show more than a year ago when we talked about him being shuttled away from the Dominican Republic minutes before being indicted for child rape. Or perhaps you remember him from episode 48 when we reported on him being shielded from extradition to Poland for child fucking under the excuse that raping kids wasn't even illegal in Vatican City back when he did it. Well, now, after more than a year of letting this perverse fuck wander the street beaten off under his frock at playgrounds, they've decided to kind of punish him, maybe. Oh, Good. It's, it's yeah. about time they decided to kind of punish him, maybe. Wonderful. <laughs> Personally, I think the DA should be seeking the maximum penalty, maybe force the guy to watch 500 hours of adult porn or something. I mean, <laughs> well, speaking of which, the decision to arrest Wesolowski came after nearly 86,000 pornographic pictures of children were discovered on his hard drive with an estimated street value of 86 million words. Now, investigators also know that 45,000 pictures were deleted from the hard drive, and it's probably a safe bet that those weren't the ones of his cats. If convicted, Wesolowski could face a paltry dozen years in prison, though at 66 that would probably amount to a life sentence. Close enough. And from the Godwin's Law File, Peter LaBarbera of Americans for Truthiness About Homosexuality demonstrated during a recent conservative talk show appearance that the things he says are about as credible as internet message board arguments. Apparently he and the anti-gay activist crew in this country feel like, you guessed it, Jews in Nazi Germany. Of and course. in the sense that nobody likes them and they should probably leave the country right away, I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> So. Well, in his defense, one of the first things that Nazis did was allow non-Jews to marry. So maybe he meant that. You know, maybe that's <laughs> correct. So it seems La Barbera is worried that homophobic hate groups like religions, for example, are losing their freedoms because gays keep 
getting freedoms, and there's only so many total freedoms to go around. <laughs> right. Now, you might be saying to yourself, but isn't that stupid? And yes, it is. But if you consider the freedom to have more freedom than gay people to be a religious freedom, then yes, freedom actually does become a zero-sum game. So congratulations <laughs> on that, religion. Great job. Right. Yeah, simple mnemonic here to keep it all straight, Christians. If it's something you're doing, it's freedom. If it's something I'm doing, you're an asshole. <laughs> I, I should have should have made it rhyme. And in go fuck myself news tonight, a group of Minnesota Muslims is demanding that people who give them free food give them the right free food. After explaining that quote some food shelves are trying to meet the need, but some of them already got canned beans that have already been mixed with pork. End quote. <laughs> Community activist and fucking idiot Fartoon Welly organized a protest to demand they, what they deem the basic human right of food that doesn't piss off Muslim God. <laughs> It's unbelievable. If a starving person won't eat the bacon I'm giving them, that's suicide, which is also right. against the rules, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so catch-22. Yeah, and the don't murder yourself rule, it's got to be higher priority than the one about pigs being the one species out of millions that's the one that's too dirty to eat. The one. So fucking weird. Now, it's worth spending a second here on exactly what the fuck they're protesting, because food banks also have cans of beans without pork in them. Right? I mean, I mean keep in mind that Islamic... <laughs> Dietary restrictions only actually forbid four things. Pork, roadkill, blood, and meats from animals dedicated to the wrong god before slander. So basically everything in a food bank but pork and beans and spam. They're not trying to get food banks to add stuff that they can eat. They're actually trying to get them to take away the shit that they can't eat. They're, they're fucking protesting other people's access to beanie weenies. Oh, I see. The sophisticated Muslim starving people clientele. They don't want to be, uh, you know, mixing with that other riffraff coming right. in off the streets or in the ambiance of the soup kitchen <laughs> getting split pea with ham like a barbarian. Welly and a group of like-not-minded protesters picketed outside the local county commissioner's office carrying signs that read, We will not be ignored, though luckily that sentiment is thus far as factually dubious as the religion that prompted it. Now, we do have a few more headlines yet to come, but first we're going to hand things over to the lovely Lucinda Lusions. A man wrote the Bible. A whore is what she wants. If it's a legitimate rape. If it's a slut, right? It, cooking can be fine. Hey! I'm proud of a man! This week in Misogyny. As I listen back over the first dozen of these segments I've done, it occurs to me that we've talked a lot about Christian misogyny, and we've talked a lot about Muslim misogyny. But we haven't really talked much about Jewish misogyny. And that's a shame, really, because it's one of those places where the Jews really excel. We'll start off somewhere between the two Jewish capitals of the world, Tel Aviv and Brooklyn, where what should have been a normal flight descended into chaos when a bunch of ultra-Orthodox assholes, or uh, I mean fuckholes, demanded that the airline accommodate their sincerely held sexism that demands that men and women be segregated. After hours of delays because the fuckholes were standing in the aisles rather than sitting next to the lesser gender, the flight finally took off, only to have the chaos resume the instant the fastened seatbelt sign was turned off. This was inspired by the belief that women are unclean, which was probably true on this flight, I suppose, since the path to the toilet was blocked by a bunch of misogynistic fanatics. Now, one would think that an airline like El Al, which specializes in catering to the bizarre demands of nutty Jews, would be prepared for this contingency. But apparently, in this instance, the butt nuttery of the zealots in question was well beyond the norm. If anyone from El Al is listening, I should probably point out that the key is to fly the Jews and the fox together then fly back with the fox and get the women. And continuing with the theme of Jewish sexism, we have a story from the tabletmag.com about chained women. 
Now, calm down, guys. This isn't as sexy as it sounds. In the Orthodox community, the term chained woman refers to a halfway divorced woman whose husband is an asshole. By Jewish custom, a woman can only remarry if her husband gives her permission in the form of a get, which is essentially a vaginal bill of sale. The story details a number of such women turning to social media to shame their ex-husbands into granting them a get. Of course, the real grotesquerie in this story revolves around the fact that the only reason the women need the damn get in the first place is because other Orthodox Jews will shame them if they remarry without one. So all it would take to eradicate this problem is not being dicks. And yet, they've chosen rallies and social media campaigns. And finally tonight, we've got a little Christian misogyny that was just too tempting to pass up, regardless of the theme of this week's bit. This one comes to us from the world leader of broadcast chauvinism, Fox News, where sub-anchor Eric Bowling worked to cement that reputation for another generation or two by referring to women pilots fighting ISIS as, quote, boobs on the ground, end quote. Now, the shitstorm has revolved around those comments, but I'm almost willing to forgive them because boobs does sound a lot like boots. But when he issued take one of his apology, he said he knew he'd said something bad because when he got home, his wife, quote, gave him the look. Fellow Fox News acolyte and jingoistic bigot Greg Gutfield also apologized for remarking that the same female pilot wouldn't be able to park the plane. Because women can't park, of course. And I don't mean to brag here, but I drove in New York City for five years. I could parallel park an SUV between your ass cheeks, Greg, and I'd be happy for a chance to prove it. That's all I've got for you this week, but don't worry, I'll be back to talk more misogyny before the show's out, because damn, is Ezekiel fucked up. Thank you, Lucinda. And and if it wasn't for Martin Luther, I could make a papal maple joke right here news tonight. Canadian columnist and former head of the country's largest Protestant church, Bob Ridley, has succumbed to the dark side and admitted that the whole God thing was almost certainly bullshit this whole time. Yeah, either that or true and absolutely horrible the whole time. Right. So he's settled on bullshit because yeah, it's easier to of Two evils, yeah. In his most recent column, he explained that his deconversion happened slowly over the past five or six years, but he assured his readers that he's still the same person he always was, except less wrong. He admitted that part of him wanted to stay in the closet for fear of alienating his readers, but ultimately he decided that that would make it really hard to sell his new book, Life Beyond Belief, A Preacher's Deconversion. <laughs> Smart move. And in theocracy <laughs> at the polls news tonight, Mike Huckabee heard that I needed another story this week and obliged by saying words in public. Bloviating at the Value Voters Summit this week, Huckabee urged voters to, quote, answer the phones in our hearts that God is ringing, and tortured analogy, before calling on all the non-believers to be ousted from the government, even the unelected ones. And while I'm no expert, it seems that he's fallen victim to the classic supervillain blunder of revealing phase one of his plan before it's complete. Yes, yeah, there's no way. There's no way this works out. Now, yeah. now all the heathens in government are going to have. They got plenty of time to get all the atheism out of their system before the piss test. Right. It's not even <laughs> right. Exactly. Point in doing it. <laughs> and in Jew medium or large news, Rabbi Ted Ryder of Jackson, Mississippi, claims he was kicked out of a local Greek eatery after he questioned the use of seemingly anti-Semitic language by the owner John Alice during his ordering process. According to the rabbi's account, he ordered a salad and was asked by Alice if he wanted the regular size or the Jew size. <laughs> Would you like that steak well done, medium, or Mexican war hero? <laughs> exactly. Ryder then responded with something like, uh, are you fucking kidding me? Did you really just ask me that? At which point, Alice reportedly argued back, quote, you know Jews are small and cheap. Everyone knows that. <laughs> <end quote. laughs> Didn't make that up. 
<laughs> Thus, in his mind, and Alice's mind anyway, successfully defending his sizing nomenclature system. The rabbi, however, remains unsatisfied despite a generous offer by Alice to rename the small, cheap Jewish salad as the Rabbi Writer Salad from now he on. He actually so, said that was that nice in of the him, article, but, yeah. Oh, no, of course, in the restaurant's defense, this is just a name. There, There's no Jew in it. We, we checked. <laughs> you checked. Okay. Now, when asked for his side of the story, the owner tried to claim this was simply a misunderstanding about an item from their secret unpublished menu called the Jewish salad. His response went something like this, paraphrase, quote, What? We have a Jewish salad, a Greek salad, a white supremacizer? It's a diverse menu. And paraphrase, quote. Now, he also offered the perfectly reasonable alternative scenario that actual, quote, he was probably offended that we offer different salads. That's all. The fuck does that, how does that even come into no. your brain and then escape. <laughs> yeah. Here's the upshot, though. This, of course, means we'll need to help this guy out with some better ideas for the egregiously anti-Semitic menu items he's trying to come up with. So go ahead and put 30 seconds on the clock. Ideas for Mississippi's third favorite Nazi restaurant. Go. <laughs> Yeah, the first two, I guess, are definitely Cracker Barrels. And I should point out before we start that chicken swastika and garlic Nazis are out because we use those in items for the racist restaurant. Okay, um, how about we start with some Luftwaffles for breakfast? Well played. Uh, all right, maybe a burger joint for lunch uh, in an Auschwitz. <laughs> or maybe just a, a Ku Klux Klan bake, perhaps. That's exactly. And Franks and beans. <laughs> That's awful. Um, yeah. Chicken chow Mein Kampf. Baby shoe string fries. Wow, that's even more awful. Uh, how about a blue-eyed blondie with Marzipanzer? Uh, <laughs> Gestapo boy sandwiches. I prefer Stahlhelm and cheese, actually. <laughs> what about Romani cotti? Like a stuffed gypsy lasagna type of thing. It's kind of like Ricaroni. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, maybe some drinks. Um, tortured Orchard, hard apple genocider. <laughs> Or maybe former uh, sponsor of the show, Pog Rum. <laughs> Schlitzkrieg? A uh, Bloody Miriam? Drake's Hard Lemonade? Hard Lemonade Off, I think you mean. Uh, yeah. um, Miller's Zieg Heil Life? <laughs> That's my favorite Zecta Luger Lager. Well done. <laughs> All right, what about dessert? Uh, Chem Brulee? Uh, maybe a double espresso? SS <laughs> Sorry again. Sorry for all these. Once again. Sorry. Side of uh, chocolate Mussolini to go with that. Maybe a dozen Carl Donuts. It's <laughs> an easy one. Uh, all right, let's get him a slogan. Um, free Jewish bread with every order. At the Nazi cafe, we're Holocaust deniers. <laughs> so terribly, terribly sorry. <laughs> sorry for all these. We're just awful that's, people. I can't believe we're still doing this. Brilliant. In a supervillainy kind of way. Um, all right, so this one makes my last one seem seem not so bad. How about Zyklondike bars for for dessert? Well, what would you do to not get gas? Wow, I, just, I don't need the a fucked up poison. They would do the cyanide. Yes, yeah, that's uh, Dude. that's precisely what I'm making a wow. joke about. Yes. All, right. <laughs> all right, let's go ahead and finish this as quickly as possible. Um, all right, I got one more. Um, all right, and this one's fun. This one's fun because it must awkwardly actually exist. And I really hope this is on their marquee. Uh, Nurem Burger King. Just doing our job. Well done. <laughs> We're finished. We're finished. That's it. I, I think I have to use the Nuremberg defense for saying some of those jokes. Heath, thanks as always. <laughs> Jumanji. So t terribly, terribly. And when we come back, we'll talk donkey dicks. I say fuck a lot. 
I have an excuse, of course. After spending more than a decade living in the Bible Belt, I've collected a lifetime's worth of reasons to say fuck. And after living for more than half a decade in New York City, I lost any inhibitions I might ever have had about saying it. That being said, it's been recently brought to my attention that perhaps I'm leaning on that word a bit too much. And as I listen back to the last few episodes, I have to admit that this criticism may have merit. After presenting a diatribe in episode 82 entitled Fucking, I did a news story on the next week's show about a Canadian pedophile in which I said fuck five times in the span of 30 seconds. That's one fuck for every ten words that aren't fuck. And if you need further evidence on my excessive reliance on this single word, I've already said fuck seven times in this segment. Anyway, got an email about it this week from Paul who worries that we might be handicapping our message with such persistent vulgarity. He writes in part, I appreciate vulgarity as much or more than any healthy person should. In fact, I love the creative ways you and Heath work in references to genitals and obscure sex acts, but for many of your listeners, the very word fuck is jarring and takes them out of the conversation. He continues, I can't imagine that there are any listeners that would give up on your show if you use the word less often, and I'm quite certain that a lot of people who are otherwise turned off by that word would be far quicker to embrace your show. Now, normally, of course, we do feedback at the end of the show, but I figured that this particular point deserved a bit more attention, as Paul is far from the first person to bring it up. And knowing that a few of our listeners are powering through despite the repeated F-bombs, I find it difficult to talk to those people about that word without unduly offending them. So for the next 90 seconds, I'd just ask that anyone who's offended by the F-word remove their right headphone. And for those people who feel patronized by having a word referred to by its first letter, please remove your left headphone. And for those of you who just don't give a fuck, feel free to leave both headphones in and get twice the entertainment. The F word, fuck, is a cruel mistress. I'm tempted to use fuck her constantly, but I have to remind myself that using F-bombs, fuck, around some people messes, fucks up lines of communication. For others, of course, the F word, fuck, adds a sense of familiarity that makes a discussion feel more like two friends just joking, fucking around. The problem is that it, fuck, is an indispensable staple of my vocabulary. When I talk about a priest anally violating, butt-fucking a child, for example, I want to use the word that has the most impact. When I see a creationist brainwashing innocent kids, the urge to tell him to shove fuck off isn't tempered by the rules of polite company. And I don't think anybody can begrudge my ire when I see how willing religious charlatans fuckwads are to find fuck a stranger in the Alps. ass. Whether a verb, a noun, an adjective, or an exclamation while having intercourse, fucking, it's the mother load fucker of all words. That being said, like any word, this one, fuck, can be overused. When it shows up every fifth fucking word, it's indicative of a wordsmith who's slacking fucking off. So if, like Paul, you're faulting fucking with me because I lean on the word too much or because I use it in lieu of more creative, fucktastic vulgarities, I'll offer a sincere apology and I promise I'll try to work fuck with my script a bit more before we record next time. But if you really expect others to give deference to a fuck about your emotional investment in a pair of phonemes, perhaps it's a good time to look deep within, go fuck yourself. Thanks and feel free to put your light headphone back in now. The Holy The key to understanding the book of Ezekiel can be summed up in the following sentence. If the aliens ever do actually make contact with us, the crazy delusional Nebraska corn farmer with the rectal probe fetish doesn't stop being insane. You see, the exile represented a complete theological meltdown for the Jews whose whole religion rested on the promise that God lived in their city and would forever keep a member of David's line on the throne. When Nebuchadnezzar came through and, you know, dunked their heads in the urinal a couple of times, it made that whole God's-on-our-side argument pretty hard to sell or buy. 
Yeah, right. Everything was going great for the Jews before that, though. Right, until, until that moment. Now, luckily, then, as now, there were batshit crazy people screaming, the end is nigh on the street corners, and while their message of God's pissed at you so he's going to force you to eat your children isn't all that palpable on a normal day, when you suddenly have to compare it to there was no God in the first place and I've been wearing this stupid hat for no reason, the idea that the crazy guy with the blackguard is right sounds a lot better. Yeah, Ezekiel basically pulled a Die Hard 3, walked around Judah with I hate J-words written on his sandwich board. <laughs> right. Except the evil villain in this case, the force to do it, was God in not, and not Jeremy Irons. Well, he is a God, but yeah. And, of course, we could never make it through this kind of insanity without the assistance of my lovely wife, Lucinda. Lucinda, welcome back. Wouldn't miss it for a dollar. Anything over that would have done the trick, though. Yeah, pretty much. All right, now we've kept our listeners in suspense long enough. Let's say you start us off. All right. Boy, do they not make you wait for the crazy in this one. They do not. Yeah. We're only eight sentences in, and already Ezekiel is meeting up with some four-winged human, eagle, lion, ox-headed, <laughs> fire-dicked <laughs> angels flying around in Jepson's cars. No what way. was that shit right. all about? Right. right. The, the hovercrafts for flying creatures that they need for some reason that also need wheels with spinners yes. for some reason. <laughs> exactly. Instead of diamonds and chrome, the rims had a bunch of uh, creepy eyes. What eyes? And that's even exactly what happens. We're not exaggerating, nope. making anything up. That's exactly how this book actually starts. Mm. <laughs> and if we had a video of what actually happened at the beginning of this, probably show Ezekiel eating a bunch of mushrooms and then sitting by himself in the desert, pawing like a cat at invisible butterflies, <laughs> alternately laughing and crying at nothing. I mean, religious people always forget that they're, they're actually in Kansas the whole time. you got to exactly. go back to it at the Right, so the four-headed flaming penis angels say, Hi, Ezekiel, I'm God. Now eat this fucking scroll. <laughs> How weird right, five was that? Five seconds on the clock. Five seconds on the clock. Direct quotes from God as porn titles go. <laughs> bing, bing, bing. Yes, Heath, Heath. I'd like to say Ezekiel 2.8. Quote, open your mouth and eat what I give you. <laughs> Did not even slightly exaggerate that. It sounds like no. fucking Boggs from Shawshank. What the right. hell's going on in this book? And, and... They go on and on to make sure you know that this is not metaphorical here. God actually makes Ezekiel eat a fucking scroll. Yes. Tastes like honey. (laughs) So the alien god tells Ezekiel that he's chosen to carry God's message, which is once again, fuck these rebellious Jews, of course. Yeah, but this time he has the special peanut butter and no milk torture to make sure that Ezekiel (laughs) knows he means business. Once again, God sets up another prophet with the worst job ever. Okay. See that desert tribe of radically faithful non-Jews that think they're Jews but keep getting it wrong? Yeah, <laughs> go tell them their religion is all wrong and then sell them these bags of sand also. Right. I'd like yeah. you to go ahead and quick do both of those. And, and then he makes them sign this absurd, uh, what was it, like a watchman contract? It basically says, unless Ezekiel shows up like Spider-Man to warn every single person in Israel against every single sin they're about to commit, unless he does that... Everything that goes wrong is his fault from now on. Yes, God's yeah. no longer responsible for any <laughs> godding. It's Ezekiel. Yeah, and then God gives him a besieged Jerusalem Lego set and asks him to put it together. <sighs> Seriously. Again, not making this shit up. <laughs> this is one of those times that God says, let me explain my message by having you live out a terribly painful right. metaphor. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to stop you right there, God. Why don't you just tell me what to say? I'll write it down. I'll use your exact <laughs> words. I promise the metaphor is not necessary yeah. Right, and in this case, the metaphor is, okay, so the, the sins of Israel leave their so- souls in mortal peril, so God demands that his prophets start off by building a miniature replica of Jerusalem out of a brick, complete with invading <laughs> army, mm-hmm. and then lay next to it for like a year on one side and four months on the other, 
while eating bread made from cow shit. <laughs> In my translation, he has to eat shitty vegan restaurant bread and burn cow shit instead of oil in his house. It's close enough. Similar, yeah. similar aromas. It's like that in mine too, but it started as human shit and then he yes. decided well, to yeah, right, right. He, the cow, the cow shit, shit was a right. was a was a compromise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, God. Uh, and it gets even weirder. God tells him to shave his beard and head with a sharp <laughs> fucking sword. Divide all the hair into three equal piles. Well, and, and no fucking around on the evenness, evenness of the piles either. He specifically says Ezekiel should weigh the hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and okay. Except maybe at cancer charities, any kind of hair weighing is extremely creepy. <laughs> right. No matter what, except maybe cancer and, charities. And then, and like, it's you know, one creepy. pile gets thrown into a fire, one pile gets scattered to the wind, and the third pile, and I'm going to quote here, you should take and strike with the sword all around the city. So before we move on to the next bit, I want you to imagine a guy that looks like he's just shaved with a pack of hungry gophers. He's running around town, tossing piles of his own hair in the air and whacking them with his sword saying, this is you. You're this. This is going to happen to you. That's the level of lunacy that we are dealing with yes. in this throughout this fucking book. Yeah. He's by the dumbest fraternity right. ever. And how benumbed are we to the Bible, the the bit in chapter 5 where God says he'll make parents eat their children and children eat their parents? It barely even gleans a mention here. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whatever. Eating babies, magical hair power's been there, done that. Yeah. Samson did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Samson did it. Yeah. Well done, sir. Yeah, and after the bizarre origin story, it settles down to some run-of-the-mill, God's going to destroy everything and skull-fuck everybody, prophesying that we've come to expect from the Bible. Maybe a tad more brutal than Isaiah or Jeremiah, though. Which puts it high in the run for most brutal worldwide. Right. This book would have been way harder to read if I wasn't imagining Samuel L. Jackson's voice the entire time. (laughs) Right. Seriously. (laughs) That would have made way more sense. I have been using Stephen Hawking this (laughs) time. And I think it's worth noting, by the way, that if your entire familiarity with this book is from that one scene in Pulp Fiction, basically, the entire book reads like that except for the righteous stuff. It's all furious anger, powerful vengeance, and knowing my name is the Lord. Yeah. A lot. Chapter 13 just struck me as a punchline. After a dozen chapters of four-headed monsters with UFO sidekicks digging through walls with a spoon and shit, Ezekiel goes out to prophecy against the prophets who are just making shit up. So, stop all that crazy prophecy, you assholes. Which brings us to Ezekiel 15, paraphrase. Jews are like dried up, withering umbilical cords and placentas. <laughs> Useless for just about anything but s'mores topping. Oh, wow. And paraphrase. <laughs> And then we get to chapter 16, and this is one of the most epically fucked up analogies in all of history. God's explaining how one day he was wandering through a field, and he saw Israel just laying there naked in its own blood, so he fucked her and gave her some clothes and jewelry and shit. But then Israel lost track of the fact that before he gave her all this shit, she was just some naked chick in a field. So not only did Israel go fucking and whoring with every passerby, but mm. she was spreading out all the nice clothes that God bought her and getting cum stains on them. Yep. And as if that wasn't bad enough, apparently she melted down all of the jewelry he gave her to make dildos. Right. Seriously. So he's bitching about this, and as an afterthought, he also throws in the fact that she murdered his kids, as if mm. jeweled dildos and a little side dick is the important issue here. But also, you should probably shouldn't have killed all those babies. You know. It's an afterthought. 
And it goes on like this. Money all over town. <laughs> and it goes on like this for pages and pages. Right. And, and, and he even says, like, at a certain point, just, he just goes off. He's like, you're worse than a whore because you fuck people for free. In fact, in fact, you have to pay people to fuck you. <laughs> in town squares, no less. And your sister's a whore and your mother's a whore. <laughs> so as punishment, God says he's going to gather all of the whore's lovers together and strip her naked. Which, come on. I mean, we're talking about a chick who pays people to fuck her at the county fair. So I don't really know how hard that's going to be on her, really. Right, but just in case that isn't enough, he's also going to have her stoned to death and cut to pieces after. There is that, I guess. That's bad. Not a happy ending at all. Now, now, just in case we weren't clear about this this last chapter, in this metaphor, God finds a naked hobo girl in a field and decides the best move in that situation is to raise her as a child slave and eventually marry her. And fuck her, yes. Yes. <laughs> and then God says, I've got a riddle for you. What has, and everybody says at once, is it the rebellious Jews in Israel and all their sinful whoredom? Is that what the answer to your fucking riddle is? And then God kind of trails off and he mumbles, yeah, but it, 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 it might have been something different than that. No, I, you don't, you don't I have know. two other jokes. <laughs> <laughs> then at 18, it says the only reasonable thing in the whole fucking book, but they feel the need to couch it in a page and a half of apologetic explanation. God's explaining that it's not fair to punish the son for the sins of the father, and he keeps saying, I know that it seems like the right thing to do, <laughs> but believe it or not, as it turns out... I know that gargling battery acid sounds fun. But... <laughs> and is it just me, or do a lot of these chapters read like a little kid explaining why he can't fly when other people are looking at him? <laughs> so much of this. The elders came to consult God, and God said, fuck off. You worship idols and coveted something or something. Right. I can't do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> and then we go back to the horror analogy by popular demand, and we meet two sisters whom God fucked, mm-hmm. Ahola and Aholaba. So Ahola <laughs> lets Egyptians caress her virgin tits, and Assyrians blow loads on them, so God lets them kill her. Right. God sends the women of Israel into decades of slavery, and now he's mad because they'll have kids that look like Babylonian prison guards, which right. clearly breaks his rule about not breeding with foreigners. That's right. their fault. You don't get get raped by a no. foreigner. What yeah. the fuck's your problem? Yeah. But Aholaba was even sluttier. Apparently, she got to the point where she was just grinding her clit against statues of men when she, she came right. upon them. It was crazy. Which leads us to perhaps the most notable of all biblical quotes. When God gives up fucking Aholaba, she starts to reminisce about the good old days when she was fucking dudes, quote, whose members were like those of donkeys and whose mission was like that of a stallion. Ezekiel 23.20. Look it up. It's there. It is. It is. In the book. I guess everyone knows what stallion jizz is like. Right. Makes that Lots, I guess, is what they're right. yeah, Lots. Exactly. Lots. Excessive. Are women into big loads? Is that a thing? <laughs> I had to use his boxers and all four of our socks to clean up. So, <laughs> so hot. And why distinguish between two speeds? I mean, like, I guess the well-known velocity differential between horse and donkey squirts necessitated the specificity. No, no dick like a donkey, but ejaculate like a horse. Like, what's the fucking dip? Anyway. I don't understand. <laughs> And then for her general hoariness, God condemns her to be grudge-fucked by all of her spurned donkey-cocked lovers. Right, again, he so doesn't get it. He's like, hey, sex-obsessed chick that can't walk past a bass relief without rubbing one out, I'm going to send a bunch of handsome, well-hung soldiers to fuck you. That'll teach you. (laughs) And then God kills Ezekiel's wife out of spite and orders him not to be a whiny bitch about it. (laughs) So awful. He's not allowed to cry, anything. Rip his clothes, he can't do anything. Uh. 
<laughs> so God says, Ezekiel, do you know what I mean when I say that nobody will mourn for Israel when I kill them all? Yes, I completely get that. Please don't kill my wife. Please do not. Don't you don't have to. I totally understand. God's like, you want the good news? <laughs> right. Now, believe it or not, we are only halfway through this insanity. But before we move on to the prophecies against foreign nations, we need to pause long enough to imbibe enough liquid courage to make it through this testament to the utterings of a lobotomy candidate. So we'll be right back after this. It's time for the atheist calendar portion of the show. This is the monthly couple of minutes that we set aside to talk about all the great atheist, secular, and skeptical events going on around the country and around the world. I should note that our efforts to give the non-U.S. parts of the world some love last month got us a little behind, and I totally neglected to mention International Blasphemy Day last Monday, but no worries, I did not neglect to blaspheme. So we're going to start off in Orlando, Florida this month, where the Free Flow Convention is taking place from the 10th to the 12th of October. Lawrence Krauss is the keynote speaker this year, and they'll also be screening The Unbelievers with a Q&A afterwards with Dr. Krauss and the film's director. Now, if that doesn't get you in the Florida mood, they'll also be welcoming Seth Andrews, Mandisa Thomas, National Director of the United Coalition of Reason, Fred Edwards, as well as friend of the show Mark Nebo and wife of friend of the show Shannon Nebo. I'm close enough that I might just make it to this one myself, but if I can't be there, I'd love to at least vicariously go there through you. But if you're on the opposite side of the country that weekend, you can also check out the Sacramento Free Thought Day in Sacramento of all places. That's taking place on October 11th and features such notable names as Rebecca Watson, friend of the show Dan Arrow, the Ross half of Ono oh Ross and Carrie, Dr. Richard Carrier, Greta Christina and friend of the show from way back, Tom Beasley of the American Atheist Podcast. And if that's not enough to entice you, maybe we can talk some Twitter shit and get an East Coast-West Coast rivalry going between them and Free Flow. But if you're not on the East Coast or the West Coast, we've still got you covered. The Skeptics of Oz Conference is taking place on October 18th in Wichita, Kansas, which is about as smack in the middle of the country as you can get. They're bringing in Seth Andrews, Sarah Moorhead, and a number of others. They've got some really interesting topics on deck. Should be way more fun than almost everything that's ever happened in Wichita. But of course, the big one in October is the 37th annual FFRF National Convention. This one is taking place in Los Angeles, California. It's a really spectacular mix of familiar atheist speakers and notable scientists with really awesome sounding topics. Sean Carroll's going to be there, as will Jessica Alquist, soon to be friend of the show Chris Johnson, Andrew Seidel, and of course FFRF co-president Dan Barker. Plus, LA has really colorful air this time of year. That's on October 24th and 25th. That's all the October stuff we have for you, but I do want to remind everybody well in advance that November 8th is Carl Sagan Day, so be sure to make your reservations early. If you want to know more about any of the events we've discussed, be sure to check the show notes for this episode for links to their homepages, and as always, if you're involved in an atheist event that could use a little free publicity, be sure to drop me a line. You'll find all the contact info on the contact page at scathingatheist.com. All right, we're back, and it turns out that during the break, this book didn't get any less insane. So I believe when we last saw our hero, he was packing up his stuff and taking his show on the road. Right. In Chapter 25, we learned that you should never limit your doom-crying bat shittery to only one city. you right. got to spread that shit around. And also in Chapter 25, we learned that the Pulp Fiction quote uh, actually comes from a Sonny Chiba movie, mm-hmm. not from the Bible. So <laughs> in case, like me, you didn't know uh, the, the whole Path of the Righteous Man thing, nowhere to be found in there. Unfortunately. Yeah, the only part of that legendary monologue that's actually from the Bible is the part that says, you'll know it was the Lord... When you get murdered. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <That's... laughs> and again, random shit. Ammonites, I'm going to curse you with pestilence. Moabites, I'm going to curse you with invading barbarians. Tyre, I'm going to curse you with a fucked up trade imbalance. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Anyway, in chapter 30, we get some more sports center analysis of the X's and O's of genocide, so that was nice. Right. They break it down for us. And then we wrap up the foreign prophecies with God pointing out the fatal flaw in his own stupid plan. He tells Ezekiel to warn all the Israelites that he's going to kill them if they don't mend their evil ways, but then he tells Ezekiel that they're all going to ignore him when he says it, 
But that's okay because after he kills them, they'll know Ezekiel was right. <laughs> and you'll also know uh, re- retroactively that the, the crazy dude with the hair and clumps batting around with his name is Ezekiel. When I had originally laid, <clears throat> laid my vengeance upon thee. Yeah, exactly, I guess. So now we move into the post-exilic I told you so portion of the book. And here we find a ray of hope. It turns out that God's going to convince everybody how awesome he is by eventually undoing a small portion of the horrible shit that he's currently doing. So it's all as well that ends well. He also says that after the exile, nobody will make Jew jokes anymore. Yeah, can't be trusted. Yeah, well, that just goes to show another way that this show just proves biblical prophecy, I guess. I guess so. It's their own fault for subscribing to a religion that rhymes with so much shit. I mean, when you're doing puns, (laughs) Jew just slips right in. Yeah, exactly. It's on you. And moving on to Ezekiel 35, which goes something like this. Uh, Hey, God, you just genocided like uh, a million people. Where are we going to put all these dead bodies? Did you even consider? Uh, Yeah, I started a pile in in Edom. (laughs) So it's like raking leaves. Let's all just go with the – I started Everybody does a small part, and then it's it's done. And if you need any more evidence that God is a supervillain, just look at the way he murders his accomplices after the job. Mm -hmm. He spends chapter 36 promising to kill all the Edomites – you know, after they had the audacity to invade Israel, after God made them invade Israel. <laughs> that was the whole thing, right? Well, they were as unclean as menstruating women. After. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I, I love, too, that God makes it clear that the only reason he's going to eventually restore the fortune of the Hebrews is so that nobody thinks that he's a, a crappy God that they couldn't handle all of that. <laughs> right. And then we get the whole Valley of the Dry Bones bit, which is basically God promising to resurrect a bunch of dead Jew zombies. Right. <laughs> Seriously. I, I have to admit, I did not see the cannibalistic Mario villains coming. That one completely got me by surprise. So weird. No, it's cool, though. They stop when you look at them, and then if you jump on them, they turn <laughs> pile of dust for like five seconds, and then shake, and then turn back. It's, it's not a big deal. No, I, I feel that I, I have to point out, otherwise we'll get emails, uh, that you're you're combining two Mario villains. Yeah, yes, yes, I was conflating the ghosts with yes, the, okay. the, the... I, I just, I just pointed the, out because we, we would get tweets. You know who from. <laughs> and then Ezekiel runs out of places to start prophesying again, so he just starts like making shit up about mythical places like Magog, where God's arch enemy lives, apparently. <laughs> yeah, you can see some early end time shit going on here with a great army raised against Israel, which God will smite with sulfur and earthquakes. Right, right. And then he also offers a detailed 10-point plan on how to dispose of all their corpses over the seven months following this massacre. He's <laughs> thought this through. And the 10-point plan, it begins with everyone walking around and putting a post-it that says, Dead person, please recite right. <laughs> That's actually We'll need spotters. We'll need spotters on this. And then, like, for the last nine chapters, we basically just get a gritty reboot of the last half of Exodus, where Ezekiel essentially reads the blueprints for the new temple out loud, foot by foot, or cubit by cubit, rather, and then reminds everybody who gets to kill what once they re-inherit the promised land. Yeah, a strong start, but it really fell apart in the third act. Yeah, really did. And, and that's it. I'm tempted to say that this has to be the most fucked up book in the Bible, but if past experience tells me anything, it's that there is no floor to biblical crazy. <laughs> Blows crazy like an ejaculating horse. That's lots. That means <laughs> lots. But the good news is that every book of the Bible from here on out is much shorter than this one. Size isn't everything, but, you know, who doesn't enjoy a donkey once in a while? Let's... <laughs> The effort, you retard. The effort was too (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Daniel in three weeks, but between now and episode 88, feel free to read Satan shit that doesn't suck. Amen. Sayonara, bitches.
It's time for the part of the show that comes next, listener feedback. This is the part of the show where I didn't bother to write an introduction because I figured Heath would cut me off eight words in like he always does, but apparently he's not doing it this time because he knows that I didn't write an introduction, so he's just kind of being like a silent partner on a podcast, which is unhelpful. Thank you for making me look like an asshole. No, that's cool. So you're just going to leave some, yeah, some dead air there at the end of the intro? <laughs> you're all set? No? No more awkward. Sorry about that. That you come up with the last second. All right. Our first email this week comes from Ryan, who wanted to share this little nugget of Christian Facebook wisdom. Apparently some deep thinker left this one loitering on his timeline. Quote, our choice to stand in the goodness of God, despite facts, is the most powerful tool we have. It is really the only weapon that works. End quote. Well, so... Yeah, that's, that's yeah, doing. that's correct. Uh, yes, <laughs> ignoring facts, we call that ignorance. That's the only weapon that works. In this instance, I guess I have to just applaud the Christian for their honesty. It's it's one thing to be passively stupid, but when you embrace it like that, that takes courage. Uh, sure, sure. Let's call that courage for them. <laughs> yeah. By the way, if you want to see plenty of sentiments like this one, I suggest you check Joyce Meyer's Twitter feed. She's all about embracing the stupid. Our next message comes from uh, Connor G. on Twitter. He ran across some religious protesters the other day making asses of themselves and annoying the shit out of the general populace. He says that despite an urge to confront them, he chose not to and asked whether we think he made the right choice. Yeah, I'd say he made the right choice. It's probably a good move to just ignore that stuff. I mean, if you start involving yourself in that fight, before you know it, you end up wasting your entire week producing atheist podcasts. <laughs> right, Imagine writing, it'd be exhausting. recording, and editing. Yeah, I, I mean, look... I, Personally, I almost always choose the confrontation if I don't have anywhere to be or something, you know, but I love that shit. I feed on the frustrated tears of the believers, but I I know that's not the diet for everybody. So, like, basically half the point of this show was to draw the trolls away from the people doing serious stuff. So, yeah, I'm all about confronting the protesters personally. Absolutely. And just as a general rule, if you're part of an organized protest by a religious group, you've surrendered your right to complain about arguments with protest protesters that might walk by. You can't complain about that anymore. My only problem is that they clearly want attention so bad when they do that, and I hate to comply and I guess give I them any. That, yeah. I-, I prefer to wait for controlled conditions like this when we don't have to waste time being semi-polite enough to let them finish their stupid two-minute bursts of nothing speak. But ultimately, if you're the lightning rod type of atheist like, like we clearly are, I'd say it's a good idea to distract those idiots from all the nice, normal, secular people walking around. Exactly. Yeah. Lightning rod is the, the, the key out. there, yeah. Because what you're doing here is laying on the grenade so that the people around you don't have to be annoyed. And if exactly. you go to it with that in mind, you know, with the goal is you know, to make the overall situation less invasive for the innocent passersby, and, and not with some grandiose goal of converting a raging street preacher, it's, you know, in that instance, I think it's a noble endeavor. But I've also seen people who try to just out-volume the protest and exacerbate the problem. So it's, it's definitely going to yeah. come down to your personality and, and the tactic you choose. Yeah, don't do the out-volume thing. Don't no, work. please. Tried a few times. Does not work. And finally tonight, we have an email from what I assume is a different Connor. He was listening to episode 29 of the Incredulous podcast, which, by the way, is spelled with a K if you're having trouble Googling it. Right. And he felt like Noah and I really dropped the ball. So during a segment on cooking with sperm... And if that, that was, doesn't get you go. downloading, I'm embarrassed to call you our audience. So, sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll second that. Anyway, we're doing a segment about some dude who's publishing sperm cookbooks, and host Andy Wilson invited us to guess what the title of the cookbook was. Connor writes, quote, I was amazed and a bit disappointed that you guys missed such a brilliant opportunity to do an impromptu 30 seconds on the clock bit. So if I could be so bold as to take over time duties, I'd like to put 30 seconds on the clock myself for titles for a sperm-based cookbook. Can quote. he do that? Can he put... So, uh... good, good stuff. But uh, to be fair to the very hilarious, talented, and thorough host, Mr. Andy Wilson, 
Yes, the Andy Wilson. He did suggest perhaps taking 30 seconds at that moment, but we ended up moving on for some reason without giving it proper treatment. Right. And while I do appreciate Connor's initiative, we, we already used our 30 seconds on the clock for this week, but we haven't done a top 10 yet. So, in honor of Connor, Andy from Incredulous, and sperm guzzlers everywhere, here's our top 10 <laughs> sperm cookbook title suggestions. Go. I was Go. wondering why we were doing this one. All right, well, since it was a British show we were on, I'll go with the Fanny Farmer cookbook because, I mean, you know, look, there are easier ways to get their <laughs> sperm, but, you know, let's be thorough. Let's get everything in there. <laughs> Fanny Farmer to do. out of there anyway. Number nine, about uh, Joy of Cocking by Ron Bauer and Pecker. Seminal work in the field. <laughs> of course. Uh, how about No Illusions 30-Second Meals? Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't take very long at my age. <laughs> Number seven, um... Master plating for dummies. Oh, nice, nice. Well done. Uh, number six, the, the extraordinarily fast. frugal gourmet. <laughs> just, just what I can make, kids. <laughs> number five, everything tastes like choked chicken. <laughs> number four, guess who's coming in dinner? <laughs> Racist and spermy at the same time. That's yeah, how that's we like it. That's what I'm going for. Try another one like that with number three, How to Eat Fried Sperms. Oh, nice, nice. I love that book when I was a kid. Not that I had the worms. One. All right, so, uh, so something seasonal. How about uh, a Spanksgiving Spectacular? Everything from manberry sauce to spunkin' pie. <laughs> well done. And the number one sperm cookbook title, Beat Spray Love. And that's all the feedback you get. If you want more, keep sending us those emails, tweets, Facebook messages, etc. You'll find all the contact info on the contact page at scathingatheist.com. Before we let cool in the microwave for five minutes tonight, I want to welcome apparently a whole shitload of new listeners. So huge thanks to everybody who tells a friend about the show. Apparently it's working, so by all means, keep it up. Also, huge props to everybody who rates the show on iTunes, especially the people who actually have to install iTunes just to rate us, which at least one person was willing to do. So huge thanks for that. And that's all the blasphemy we've got for you this week. But we'll be back in 168 hours with author and annotator Steve Wells. He's got a new book out that answers the questions of exactly what the Bible does and doesn't say about homosexuality. I've actually had a chance to read it. It is a damn interesting book. Should make for a damn interesting conversation as well. But if you can't wait that long, be sure to follow Heath. Lucinda and I on Twitter. That's at Heath Enright, at Lucinda Lusions, and at Noah underscore Lusions. You can also join the more than 10,000 discerning Facebook users that have liked our page. And for doing this, you'll be privy to random real-time complaints about how crazy the fucking Bible is. Also, be sure to listen to us on Stitcher. If you're down with the whole Stitcher thing, I'd ask you to leave us a review there as well. But that's a huge pain in the ass, and I'm just not willing to ask that much of you. But do check us out there and help bump us into the top 100 podcast. Obviously, I also need to thank Heath for all the contributions that he makes this and every week. I also need to thank Lucinda for knocking it out of the park so consistently. Obviously, I want to thank Tracy Harris of Atheist Experience and Godless Bitches fame for providing this week's Farnsworth quote. I had the pleasure of meeting her a while back at ReasonCon. She consistently impresses me as one of the sharpest wits and quickest minds in the atheist movement. If you don't listen to her on the Atheist Experience, you have nobody to blame for that but yourself, as I have provided a handy link to their website on the show notes for this episode. But most of all, of course, I need to thank this week's most benevolent bipeds, Cheryl, Sue, Lee, Maurice, Carrie, Wayne, Nick, Joel, David, Jess, Anna, Chris, Aaron, Anthony, Eric, and Pablo. Cheryl, Sue, Lee, 
Lee Maurice, Carrie, and Wayne, who are so sexy, Pennsylvania Jesus statues beg to go down on them. Nick, Joel, David, Jess, and Anna, whose ninjutsu is the envy of failed polygamous kidnappers everywhere. And Chris, Aaron, Anthony, Eric, and Pablo, whose dicks whores lust after in the donkey Bible. Together, these 15 fine, fit, ferociously fuckable free thinkers funded a fraction of our finances this week by giving us money. Even the best dick jokes can never express how truly grateful we are to the listeners that make this show possible week after week. If you'd like to join their ranks, you can make a per-episode donation at patreon.com slash scathingatheist and earn some cool bonuses at the same time. Or you can make a one-time donation by clicking on the donate button on the right side of the homepage. Or if you're as awesome as one of our listeners this week, you could do both. And if you'd like to help out with that Nigerian prince still hasn't emailed you the account number, you can also help us a ton by telling your friends about the show or sharing us on social media where so doing isn't likely to cause you bodily harm. If you have questions, comments, or death threats, you'll find all the contact info on the contact page at scathingatheist.com. All the music used in this episode was written and performed by yours truly, and yes, I did have my permission. To not be conspicuous with their prayer. From the KJV. That's not in the KJV.